Thanks for listening to this repost of one of our very first episodes. As you'll be able to tell, it was a hard one to edit and our conversation was kind of scattered. And that's mostly because we didn't quite know at the time what we were doing with this podcast. But we really like the books that we talk about here and we felt the conversation was important. So um, we tried to put it together in as coherent a way as possible and hopefully you can get something from it. Also, just a quick content warning, this episode does talk about graphic depictions of violence, oppression, and sexual assault. Hi, and welcome to Liberating Libraries, a project by the Conspiracy of Equality. My name is Caitlin. And my name is Blake. If you would like to know more about Liberating Libraries and the Conspiracy of Equality, you should check out our website at liberatinglibraries.org. In this episode, we're looking at two books by Marlon James, A Brief History of Seven Killings and The Book of Night Women. We had a lot to say about both books, but our discussion mainly focuses here on his use of violence and how this affects us as readers and the larger discussion about liberation. A Brief History of Seven Killings was awarded the Man Booker Prize in 2015, and this was seen as a really important moment for Black and Jamaican literature, but it was also a controversial choice because of the level of violence, something we talk about right at the beginning of the episode. A Brief History of Seven Killings is looking at gang and drug violence in Jamaica from the time of early 1970s up until the time of late 80s, early 90s. One of the central points in the book is about the attempted assassination of Bob Marley and sort of the politics surrounding this attempted assassination and then the effects of the attempted assassination on members of the gang and members in Jamaica and people in Jamaica from of that assassination. And so the other book that we're using is The Book of Night Women, which is uh, James's second book. So Brief History of Seven Killings is the third. And The Book of Night Women is set during slavery times in Jamaica. Um, It's set primarily on a plantation. It tells the story of the slaves on that plantation, primarily through the perspective of a young girl named Lilith, who is actually the daughter of a slave who was raped by one of the overseers. And primarily it revolves around her uh, understanding of, of what's going on on the plantation, but also this plot uh, by a number of slaves to have a revolt and to run away from the plantation. And so the sort of climactic event at the end of the book is um, this large slave rebellion and attempted escape. One of the things that is prominent and relevant in both of these books is the use of violence by the author and the use of very graphic imagery to both tell the story as like part of the narrative, but also as part of the sort of understanding the social and political situation that all the characters are in. It was actually a controversial choice for the Ben Booker because of the violence, where people did feel it was too gratuitous. Um, so it, like I would say it's the primary critique that I saw of the reviews I've read of it, that's uh, the history of seven killings is that it's just too violent and it shouldn't have won the prize on that nature. So both books are set in very violent contexts. Obviously slavery is is full of all kinds of violence and um, the violence that you get in in a history of seven killings is um, 
is fomented by sort of all of these external influencers that are trying to kind of lay claim to post-colonial Jamaica. But yeah, so the violence is really, really graphic. Because one of the things that James has said in interviews about just how graphic the violence is that he uses is that he thinks violence needs to be violent. It has consequences and real effects. It's not just um, kind of like a narrative something to move the narrative along the violence that happens in both these effects deeply affects all of the characters and all of their motivations from the time that violence happens like going forward and going longer and into their lives and every little bit is affected by this violence that's going on Mm -hmm. and i think part of what james was trying to get at with with talking about how um the violence that he wants to write should be violent is this idea that we need to write complete stories about violence or we should Mm -hmm. at least have access to what complete stories about about violence look like and that to me is the key to why i don't see the violence in either of these books as being gratuitous Mm -hmm. what's impactful about the way violence is written in both these books is that You're given this complete story of violence and its consequences, and you're never left to revel in it. You're never left to be gleeful about any act of violence, whether it's the good guys, the quote-unquote good guys versus the bad guys. Like, you're you're never supposed to revel in any of it. The violence is there, and it's, it's also not... Like, it's fictionalized violence, but it's fictionalized violence based on real violence that has happened. So it's violence that's happening. But, like, he doesn't just use it as, like... Yeah, that gratuitous, just like, oh, like, kind of getting that gross factor. It's not what happens because it's important to the story and it will move the characters along. It'll move kind of the story along and they have to deal with this violence that has has happened with them. are in are very different and yet there's a lot of parallels between them but I mean there is a difference between the world structured under slavery which is the system of very direct control versus post-colonial oppression which is different Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering like what do you see as that difference so I guess like in the book of night women there is violence among the slaves Primarily in the form of like Obeya, African ideas and religious beliefs, and kind of in the ways that particularly Homer is able to use Obeya to sort of kill slaves that she doesn't trust or slaves that she thinks is going to betray, um, kind of the movement that they're building, the 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 revolt that they're building. But for the most part, it it's it's direct sl- violence onto the bodies of slaves and not just onto the bodies of slaves but into their mind you know not only just using violence to get work out of your slaves which is a part of it but it's also about like a deep spiritual violence of like you needing to control every single aspect of the slaves world whereas in a brief history of seven killings for me violence is like there it's more about freedom like the characters in a post-colonial situation have the uh, the 
appearance of freedom of choice of of choosing the violence of choosing which road they want to get down want they want to go down that the slaves don't have so the slaves violence around the slave in, in slavery is very enclosed and it's about entrapping whereas in a prefecture seven killings the violence almost it's about an attempt to also get freedom yeah i think i, I remember thinking um when thinking about these two books together about how the way that the source of violence is dispersed and hidden in A Brief History of Seven mm. Killings, I think tells us a lot about sort of what we're up against in a post-colonial context and what folks are up against in a post-colonial context where you don't necessarily get to, like they know that the guns are coming from somewhere, but they don't ever get to see what that really means or looks like or who their enemies are. Whereas in the Book of Night Women, you know, regardless of the fact that their rebellion fails, Homer has a very clear idea about who their enemies are. And Homer is able to target and isolate what the pro like who the enemies are and how we need to extinguish them. And I think the lack, the fact that that's not even a possibility mm. in a brief history tells you something about the insidiousness of post-colonial power, of the system of post-colonial power where you know, the same people, the same, the, the, the descendants of the same people have power, right? The same white folks have power, but it's so much more hidden and corrupted into all of these like everyday systems. And it's just not as, as, as apparent what the, what the enemy is. But Josie Wells, who, who starts off as sort of the number two guy in the gang that we're following, and eventually be, rises up to become one of the, the most powerful sort of Jamaican drug lords, both in Jamaica and in New York City. Um, as and, and he's the one who orchestrated the attempted assassination of um, Bob Marley. You get bits of it, right? Like, he, he has an idea, but it's just, it's not as tangible. So I'll just read a, a section from the book. That's why neither the JLP nor the PNP, um, so I know those are both political parties in Jamaica fucking with the peace treaty peace can't happen when too much to gain in war and who want peace anyway when all you when all that mean is that you still poor this is what I thought Papalo understand you could lead a man to peace all you want you can fly out the singer and make him sing for money to build a new toilet in the ghetto you can go wind your waist in Raytown or in jungle and par with man who only last year killed your brother but a man can only move so far before the leash pull him back. Before the master say, enough of that shit. That's not where we're going. The leash of Babylon. The leash of the police code. The leash of the gun court. The leash of the 23 families that run Jamaica. The leash that pulled two weeks ago when the Syrian pussyhole, Peter Nasser, tried to talk to me in code. That leash get pulled one week ago when the American and the Cuban come with a coloring book to teach me about anarchy. So like, I like that one because it's... It's Josie. He he sees all these things happening around him, right? Like, right? Like he sees the poverty that's happening, and he also sees that like I am on a leash, right? Like this, like I I have free choice, but only free choice up to a point before the Americans try to rein me in, or these families in Jamaica try to rein me in, or these criminal courts that are bullshit try to rein me in. It's there, right? Like you can see, kind of broad strokes up in the sky that this is where the violence is coming. But then it's also just so much more personal, 
like in, in in the books, right? Like where he tries to like he has to kill all of the people who are involved in the Bob Marley assassination to keep it from like kind of exploding out of his control. So much more complicated and messy. So even though you have this like tangible idea of what's going on, the actual impacts of that violence really don't matter up here. What's going on up up at the top level? It's it's what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. Then it makes me wonder, sort of, what what do we do with that information? What do we do with the fact that James is revealing all of these intricate webs and the obfuscation of them, right? Like, in the sort of, you're never quite sure what's really going on way that he writes the book, <laughs> we kind of get to feel what these folks like Josie are feeling, where they kind of almost have a grasp on it, but really still don't see the whole mm-hmm. the whole thing. What do we do with that? I don't know. Isn't it our job then to take what James have got us or like and expose it? Right? Like is that like that like that's how we have to understand postcolonial violence. We can't understand postcolonial violence through just this lens that we're they want we want to give, which is just like that focusing on sort of that the, the gang violence in Jamaica and nothing else. It's like it's our duty to be like, okay, but this gang violence is coming out of somewhere. And it's not just coming out of you know, corrupt moral character, which is what we're given, but it, it, it's coming from like people in power who need this violence to maintain their power. And I think that is what our job is. That is what like we have to take from this and like focus our ideas on, and that that like that is what we need to look at. Mm-hmm. But then I wonder too, like. He's also giving us a window into, like we said, if he's writing this complete story of violence, he's giving us a window into the intimate ways that violence is going to continue to exist. I mean, I mean, Josie's also saying, in a sense, you can have peace, but that doesn't change the facts of the violence that came before. It doesn't change, mm. right, the history of violence. And so it's like... Yes, we have to think structurally, but we also have to think intimately, Mm. right? That's the other thing that is being offered in this story about all of the the, the chronicling of these, like, really deep impacts of violence is telling us about how we have to pay attention to the intimacy of it and find ways to both target the structural and the Mm -hmm. intimate. And I think maybe this is a good segue then into the story of of Nina of Nina yeah as a way to talk about that yeah so I think that's a great way to talk about it so yeah like and again again this is one of the really good things that James does about violence is like again going back to like he's he makes it in impact the characters for a long period of time I think is beautifully told in the story of Nina so Nina Burgess is a fan of Bob Marley she had a one-night stand with him at one point and then kind of becomes obsessed with him. She comes from a middle-class family in Jamaica, which I think is important. So kind of your first introductions to her are her kind of waiting outside of Bob Marley's house and just sort of like standing there thinking that he's going to come out and, you know, be like, oh my God, I love you. And her having this big romantic getaway. And she goes back and she comes and she goes and she comes and she goes. And then she is there the night of the attempted assassination and is actually right in the middle of it because she sees something happen and kind of out of curiosity 
goes into it, but she sees everything. And she sees that the people who were doing the killing see her there. So one, so one after that happens, her character involvement through the rest of the story is it's a different name every time. And it's about her trying to escape her life, trying to escape Jamaica, trying to make sure that she's hidden and can never be found because she is just so scared that Josie is going to come after her, that, that, that these gangs are going to come after her for what she saw. Yeah, and I read uh, in another article recently that um, one of the interpretations of Nina's character is, you know, by the fact that she takes all of these different names on and these different identities, she's Marlon's, Marlon James is also like giving us an every woman kind of story. Like Nina Burgess sort of represents this, this the everyday person from Jamaica who goes to the extent of having of fleeing Jamaica, right? She, she represents the diaspora that flees Jamaica but can't ever flee its violence and is permanently like carrying all of that with her in the intimate interactions that she has in New York where she is, I think she's like taking care of victims of, of gang violence, like Jamaican victims of gang violence in New York hospitals. So she both physically can't actually escape that violence, but then is also the way that she understands Jamaica is now permanently shaped by that. I like that. I think that's a really interesting way of like reading her because I think it's true. Because like in each one, even though it's her, she is like outside of like the first couple of times, you're not actually even sure that it's this character, that it's Nina until like usually further along in the story. Yeah, so, like, I think just to connect it back to what you said, like, right, like, these are going to be the people we're working with, the people that we want to try to involve into movements are the every woman who is fleeing gun violence in Jamaica or Guatemala or Honduras or Mexico, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, like, this fear of what this violence did is going to seep in and is going to have to be dealt with. On the one hand, I'm not sure that the structural analysis of violence helps us sort of it would help us in an encounter with someone like Nina Burgess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think about what Josie is doing in that quote that you read, because I think there's so much that's going on in that quote, right? Because the other thing that he's doing is distancing himself. Yeah, He's giving the structural analysis in a way that removes himself from the story and removes his emotions and personal experience and intimate relations to violence from the story. And so it's like, there's like a tapping into both of those things. And that's what's so difficult. And that's what's so intractable, I think, that, 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 that James's books are, are revealing to us, the intractability of, of really getting at violence in ways that both understand its global systemic causes and can tap into and allow people to really engage their intimate relations to it. What can we take from the Book of Night Women then? Because the violence in the Book of Night Women, I mean, contextually is very different. Like, as we mentioned before, the system of slavery versus the system of post-colonial violence are, are different. They come from different places. It is a different violence. Like, it's far more brutal violence in the Book of Night Women than in A Brief History. Where, where does that leave us? Where, where do we go with that? Yeah. So I think the best way to come at this is through a particular story of a, like a particular moment from the book. And that's the events at Culebre. 
So this this is um, so Lilith works on the plantation um, owned by um, Master Humphrey, and she gets sent to work uh, for the Roger family, which is Miss Isabel, who is Humphrey's paramour of various varying degrees. Um, her family um, as a punishment. And while she's there, um, she sort of interacts with one of the one of the slaves that is there, Dulcinea, who is sort of bit, has been like a kitchen slave for the Roger family for a really long time. And there's all kinds of events that happen. Um, what kind of kickstarts this this one major event is that Dulcinea is actually whipped to death by um, Madame Roger because uh, some goats escape in the morning because she forgot to lock the goat pen. And um, this is, you know, someone who's basically been their house slave for a long, long time. And Madame Roger just basically beats her until she falls down and doesn't get up. And it's very horrific. And Lilith sees this and describes it. And she doesn't actually have very friendly feelings towards Dulcimina, but she's still like really affected by the fact that she died. And then she's um, put in a position where she's with M Master Roger when he is having a bath and he basically tries to sexually assault her. And so she has to make a decision and you, you hear her mental process of making a decision of whether or not to submit or to fight back. And she's thinking about the pain that she'll receive if she fights back, what the beating would actually look like, what a whipping would feel like if she fought back versus the sort of indignity and violence of actually submitting to this. And then at one point she just decides she will not submit. Like she just looks at him and just all of the seething hatred of all of the effects of all of this violence just comes out and she just spits in his face. And they get into a tussle and she pushes him under the water and she holds him there until he he dies. Madame Roger comes in and sees them, she screams, Lilith follows her and pushes her off the stairwell and she lands on the marble floor and breaks her neck. One of the other house slaves then, you know, sees her do this and Lilith then decides that the, the only solution to the dilemma that she's gotten herself in by killing two masters is to set the entire house on fire. And there are two small children in a bedroom that this other house slave tries to rescue. And Lilith just bars the door, sets the house on fire, and burns all of them to the ground. What I think is really interesting about this scene, so this scene is incredibly brutal. It's incredibly visceral, the way it's described. You're really, you're really hearing and feeling Lilith's sort of tangible experience of what holding people's lives in her hands feels for her. This is the first time she's had that and it's um, she's sort of feeling very um, uh, I think she's feeling very enlivened or emboldened. So just he's describing her um, so she lights the lights the room on fire, lights the house on fire and the children are being burned alive inside. And then he writes, but as she step down the stairs, the same fires strike Lilith back and she jump. The fire cackle and mock her and leap for her skirt. She scream again and again as the fire hiss. She run down the rest of the stairs and trip and fall to the floor and get up to find her shoulder and chest soaked with the mistress blood. The fire coming after her, hopping down from step to step like an impudent picnic. Lilith run. And I think to me that sort of sums up what James is doing with violence in this story. Because he's giving 
the he's giving these characters opportunities to enact the violence that is so obviously the response to their circumstances and and to mm -hmm. what people have done to them and in one instance we feel we're sort of feeling like almost you know M master roger is a terrible terrible person we're really happy that you know he's not going to rape her but then we're also we're feeling the consequences of the fire we're feeling the fire licking at her and that never goes away that fire doesn't ever go away for her she holds it's not exactly a guilt but it's like the presence of the acts that she did stays with her and it haunts her for the rest of the story it makes her it, it impacts the way that she is able to participate in the rebellion at the end it it haunts her and i i just think that that's a really important scene for setting up all of the the ways that he's trying to deal with violence to say that that violence might be a necessary reaction or a necessary tool to get freedom or to get to get out of oppression but if we revel in it the fire is going to get us yeah i think that's a a really good sum up well, how do you think it relates to what happens at the end with Homer and with the rebellion, right? Because like, there's this incredibly thought out rebellion that the slaves, that, that Homer and the other, the other night women try to enact and it utterly fails. Yeah. And I think there's something there that he's trying to tell us about the relationship between violence, struggle and, and you know, failure or success. Because I think, like, so I think it's complicated because you're right. Like, when faced with slavery like this, like, the only option for slaves to resist in some type of way that would seek out their freedom is through violence. There's always a, there's a tension between the characters. So Homer, who is the elder house slave on Montpellier, which is um, Master Humphrey's plantation, who is the primary planner. She is the one who leads it one who like keeps people in line she revels on it like it's it's it so the plan was to strike during the day because then you would actually have like they would the slaves would have the freedom of the night to try to escape any type of the redcoats coming redcoats being the british the, army yeah the, being the british army yeah, that is correct but it falls apart and it falls apart really early because the slaves are using this as an opportunity to take revenge. But not all. Like So there, there are some that get really, really frustrated with things that are happening and would just be like, no, like just kill them and we need to get into the fields. Like We need to burn the houses, burn the fields, and we need to get into kind of the trees. Like We need to get out of here. And nobody's listening to them because they just all want to take their revenge. So many of them just want to take their revenge. And this is particularly true with Homer, who that time at the start of the rebellion had actually been imprisoned herself and whipped. So they get her out of prison and she, like, even though they say to her, okay, let's, like, I think it was Palmer who was just like, okay, let's, let's run. Can we run please? And she's like, no, 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 I have to go do this. And she goes into Master Humphrey's mother's room, who's just this old, horrible person, like this old, horrible slave owner who has made Homer's life hell, who sold off Homer's children 
for the sake of selling off her children just to be mean, not for any other reason. She just didn't want Homer to have them. And Homer revels in this violence. And, like, like enjoys beating her and, like, holding her hostage. And eventually how it ends is that the English were able to mass forces quicker than they thought they would. But the last scene you see of Homer is Homer taking this old woman throwing her out the window in front of Humphrey and then she is shot to death by the English right so it is it is about this reveling in this violence and enjoying this violence and this opportunity to take pleasure to take pleasure in doing violence onto those rather than actually seeking out your freedom necessarily like going about trying to build your own freedom it's almost like the conditions of the violence, the, the way that violence is enacted on slaves is so extreme or, you know, in other contexts too, is so extreme that, because like from, you know, an intellectual perspective, you might be able to say, well, isn't being free enough revenge for you against, like, isn't being free a revenge against slavery, right? Like the audacity to live freely as the revenge for slavery. But of course, that's not how this works because violence has all of these other psychological and emotional impacts like like i think it's fair to be to be like we're a little bit hypocritical and naive sitting here talking about this as if we have any kind of appreciation or understanding of what it would mean to be presented with the opportunity to like torture this woman who sold your children right mm -hmm. and who beat you and owned you and subjected you to all of this terrible stuff for so long yeah, it's true. And I mean, I also wonder, did Homer actually think it was possible? Or was Homer orchestrating this to get revenge? That's sort of the impression you get towards the end of the book. Like, you get this impression that James is trying to, like, hint at the idea that Homer's been doing this all along to get revenge rather than really caring about what the freedom looks like afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I kind of wondered about that, too, whether... Because that, to me, also, like... From a reader's perspective, I felt a little like that was a little nihilistic. Because from the reader's perspective, I was just like, but I want freedom. Yeah. I want freedom for them. But then, you know, thinking about it as like, what actually makes sense for this person to do in this context? I, I can give it. I can give it to her because like that does make sense for her to, to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also like... What are the options actually available to her? Or, like, the slaves on the, the island of Jamaica under, like, this type of white supremacy. These are the options that are available. So it's just like, yeah, like, like the idea of freedom is so strong. And, like, some of the, like, like there's Palmer, not Palmer, Gorgon? Gorgon. Gorgon. Um, like, they really believe, I think they truly believe that this rebellion is going to give them the tools to actually like set up their own alternate system of living because like they had like they wanted to they wanted to believe that whereas i don't know i think i think homer saw the impossibility of that happening oh that's such a depressing thought because then in the end who's punished more like like homer gets shot sure but she gets her moment of glee and mm -hmm. and satisfaction of killing um whatever the old woman's name was. But Gorgon is the one who ends up in the giblet, 
Yeah. Right? Like, the absolutely most horrific way to die. Yeah. In the book. Yeah. That I had to look up and really wish I didn't look yeah. up. And if you have the opportunity not to look up what this thing is, Don't. Don't. I, I suggest it because it is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's true, right? Like, and it's just like, yeah, Gorgon absolutely got way and, worse, the worst end of it. And she sings till the time, till the moment she dies, right? Like, she yeah. is fighting for freedom to the end. Yeah. So is that nihilism? Or what is James trying to give us? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? I, it's not nihilism. I know no, it's not. Like, it's absolutely not nihilism. Like, I think he's very critical of violence in freedom struggles. Like, I don't think he sees that as a possibility. Right. And maybe it's also, like, the idea, I, I don't know, that some people can take advantage of ideas, right? Like, the struggle for freedom was so strong for so many people that you could take advantage of this idea... But I don't like I don't, that. I, I don't, don't like that saying too. in that term either I because I think it, it it implies that Homer's a bad person no. or that she did it with malicious intent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those things are the case. Like, I don't... Like, she didn't want to hurt Gorgon and the other night women. She didn't want them to die. Yeah. She just wanted what she wanted and felt like... I think was just in a position to be like for the first time I'm going to take what I what I really really want because yeah. that's also an act of resistance that you see throughout the book is Homer and other other slaves even Lilith um, taking small moments to sort of take the things that they want right mm -hmm. like to take pleasure and to take to take what they want out of out of things I mean Lilith's story with Robert Quinn a lot of that has to do with Lilith's struggle to kind of see whether or not there's a possibility to take something that she could want or something a life that she could desire out of this situation and I don't think any of that's malicious mm. I don't even think that Homer killing other slaves who she's afraid of like ratting them out is malicious she's just trying she's trying to save yeah save a movement it's just yeah I don't know is it is it a problem with 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 the fact that it's fiction where because to me, it's like, okay, yes, violence isn't a great tool for liberation, but it's a necessary tool. In yeah. Like, it's necessary for slaves to use violence to be liberated. Like, how could it not be, yeah. right? Like, there's no other option under slavery but Think using about violence. Arundhati Roy's analysis of Maoists in, in central India, right? Mm. Like, nobody's watching them. They can't do nonviolence. They have to be violent. Mm -hmm. How else are you going to get the things that you want and so it's like there's a line I think that he helps us see about the extent to which that violence is useful versus not but it's too simplistic to just say violence can't be a tool of liberation yeah Music for this podcast is by Ketza from their album Metamorphosis. You can find them at the Free Music Archive or at ketzamusic.com. Music